0: Ladies and gentlemen, today I am standing up for Juvenal. Juvenal is the author of satires, or I often think of them as scurai, as rants. Um, Juvenal doesn't write for you to read him, he writes to perform. He is basically history's first great stand-up comedian so he writes these incredible rants and for ages people puzzle that you know where he goes off onto this tangent and then there's some ring composition if you look at it as a comedian which is after all what I used to do it makes perfect sense of course he goes off into a massive tangent comes back in and carries on with the narrative that's what all comedians do and he is a great comedian. He's not a nice person, but he is a great comedian. He wrote 16 satires. He is responsible for some of the most quoted, best-known lines in all of Latin literature. Whenever someone's being snooty about reality TV and how too many of us watch Strictly Come Dancing and not enough of us watch Newsnight, they invariably go, ah bread and circuses. Oh, bread and circuses. They are of course quoting Juvenal, who says that the plebs, that would be us, sold our votes for Panem Kensei's bread and the games and the circuses. His biography, Juvenal's biography, is incredibly elusive. Now that might not seem unusual. He's from the ancient world. Lots of people in the ancient world are elusive. But he lived in a time when there were loads of other writers whose work survives. He was born around the middle of the 1st century CE. And we get a reference to him, I think two references to him, in Marshall, the epigrammatist. But otherwise, he's incredibly opaque. We can kind of sketch out a maybe biography, but it is really maybe. So we think he might have been born in 55, the year 55. That's the first year of the reign of the Emperor Nero, who starts in 54. Christopher Biggins, for those of you who are doing it. (laughs) The I Claudius way. Perfectly legitimate way to remember them. 54 to 68, Christopher Biggins. Um, <laughs> 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 and he's born in Aquinum, it's about halfway between Rome and Naples, I think. He is perhaps the son of a Spanish freedman, i.e. an ex slave. So it is just happenstance, really just timing, that means that Juvenal is a citizen and not a slave. The the child of a freedman is a citizen. The child of a slave is a slave. So he has constant status anxiety. This is a theme through his work like nothing else. Juvenile is obsessed with where he fits into the world, with the money that he doesn't have, with the money that other people do have, and with everybody behaving in a way appropriately to their status. And, you know, perhaps it is a reach, but I think not too much of one, to suggest that that's because he has this terrible status anxiety because he was nearly born into slavery. It must have been very strange to be the child of some who had been a slave he may be served in the army he may came to Britain we get mentioned a few times in the satires he mentions the oysters that can be eaten in well not by me obviously I'm vegetarian but you might eat an oyster I suppose he mentions the whales not the country the fish-like mammal that you can see off that he does off the coast of the Atlantic so I think he probably came here it seems like a weird thing to get from a friend who'd visited so tell me more about the seafood I, just doesn't see (laughs) what what was it like he maybe went he was maybe exiled to egypt it's a a popular rumor about him that he's exiled to egypt for an array of unlikely causes almost all of which would have resulted in his certain death had they been true but he does certainly hate egypt unfortunately that doesn't narrow it down because he hates everything (laughs) it is the joy of juvenile ladies and gentlemen would you please welcome llewellyn morgan Um, I wanted to ask you if you think it's a conscious choice that Juvenal is so opaque in his material. He sort of deliberately holds himself back like he doesn't want us to know. Do you think that's the case?
1: Yeah, I think he's deliberately doing that. I mean, there there are other satirists that write in in Rome. Like, you know, his his greatest predecessor is probably Horace, and you hear a lot more about Horace here, about where he lives and more about his friends and so on. I think it also kind of... It works better with his particular style to have this ranty, unhinged kind of style of criticism that he has for most of his satires. But that makes... That, that would be less plausible if he, was, if he was a developed human that you were aware of.
0: Do you think that juvenile satires are revised from performance? I really do, but I would think that because I used to be a comedian.
1: Well, there's some evidence that there are different versions of his satires. What I'd say, though, is that, deep as my respect is for stand-up comedians, not very many of them deliver their routines in dactylic hexameters. No. Um, and I'm inclined to think that this was always about writing and this was all about composing once and for all the perfect satire. He creates these perfect comic punchlines from the dactylic hexameter. It is, it is so wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Eventually, he makes it back to Rome. He begins his career doing the one thing that he has qualified above all else and anyone else to do, which is be utterly vile about as many people as is humanly possible in verse. (laughs) I'm not going to, for a moment, try and persuade you that Juvenal was a good person. Even by the standards of his own time, Juvenal is a dyspeptic man. He is xenophobic, he is homophobic, he is misogynistic. I'm not going to try and defend him on any of those counts. He is all of those things, and they are all horrible. What I am going to tell you is that I think he is a brilliant comedian. He is an extraordinary poet, amongst other things. He has countless, I think over 2,000 of the words in his extant work are hapax legomena. They're only found there because he uses colloquialism, slang, utter smut, ladies and gentlemen, like I cannot say on Radio 4 at any time of the day and night... (laughs) without being marched out of here and I think kicked in the face by Tony Hall himself. I think that is what happens. If I say, it's so filthy. When I was in the sixth form, I think we had juvenile satire six, which is the one on women at a girl's school. Let's do the misogynistic text. Good idea. We've definitely got low self-worth. We're teenage girls. What's the worst thing that could happen? (laughs) But, though, some of it is so filthy that when you get a version of it at school, you can't translate half of it because it's just too dirty and it's not in there. They've just taken it out. And you get a dictionary and the words just aren't in the dictionary at all. And then when you get to university, they lend you big dictionaries. (laughs) No, they do. Giant ones that you can use to hold doors open, even big oak doors from yore. Um, So I have massive, i am loaned a massive Latin to English dictionary, a massive Greek to English dictionary. Huge. I mainly use them to put a that's terrible. I mainly used them to rest a fan heater on for three, <laughs> for three years because it was cold. But anyway, imagine that wasn't true. When I got them, I thought, finally I can find out what's happening in Satire 6. Big day. I wouldn't want you to think. Note how I framed this story so it isn't. I got a dictionary and immediately turned to the dirty pages. That is what happened, though. <laughs> um, so I, first, I finally, my moment comes. I can find out what's going on with that masseur in Satire 6. So... I start flipping through the pages, and it is so rude, the juvenile, that when you get to... It's in the Big Latin Dictionary, but they won't give you a translation into English. They'll only give you a translation into Greek. (laughs) When you look it up in the Greek Dictionary, it's so rude, they only give you the Latin. Come on, I'm 19. I've definitely done it. (laughs) We should start, of course, with Satire 1 because it's uh, the first one, but also because it's programmatic. Juvenal sets out what he's intending to do. And what he tells us is, firstly, that he's going to write about the famous dead. It's too risky writing about the living, as far as Juvenal's concerned. But also, he says, if you live when he lives and are as he is, it is harder, he says, not to write satire. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Armando Iannucci. Armando, I love that bit in Satire One where Juvenal says it's harder for him not to write satire, given the way the world is. Yes. Um, I think that might be true for you. You used to be a respectable radio producer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, although recently I've I've decided that I'd rather not do political satire. I just find the world and politics itself is is sort of... is self-satirising, that's the thing. It's sort of self... Satire is all about taking what you see and then twisting it and bending it and and twisting it out of shape and distorting it and exaggerating it until it becomes something absurd. But that's what Trump does anyway Yes. in every tweet that he... You know, the first three or four words are fine. They're absolutely fine. You can't quibble. But by about the fifth or sixth word, it just goes off into... It doubles back on itself, the logic. He contradicts himself. And what you were saying about Juvenile, a big comedy monologue that's allowed to go off at tangents and... come That's what he does. That's what Trump does (laughs) on a global scale. And so he starts about five or six sentences simultaneously, and they never end. End. they never end they'll go on for four maybe eight years and that's <laughs> and, and and that's what i was thinking of when you were talking about this figure why Juvenile feels so contemporary because it is this this scattergun vitriol against everybody and everything And unfortunately, he now resides in the White House.
0: He's not as clever as Juvenile, I think.
2: No, no. uh, I I think his Greek is probably as bad as Juvenile is. (laughs) Yes, but he does share the dislike of foreigners, gays and women. Women, yeah. Yes,
0: yes. Satire 2, I think we will skip over, partly because it's not his finest work and secondly because it is so homophobic I cannot bring myself to talk about it. Matthew Paris once asked me if I thought, given Juvenal's obsession with and revulsion at men having sex with men, he was a closeted gay man. And I didn't know the answer then and I've thought about it a lot in the intervening years and I don't know the answer now. I think he's obsessed with and revolted by men having sex with men and also by women having sex with men. LAUGHTER So the more time goes on, the more I tend in my head to think of him as a really judgmental lesbian. Um... (laughs) LAUGHTER Saves time? I think it does. We'll start properly then with Satire Three, the first great satire by Juvenal on Rome, on the awfulness of the capital city that is Rome. It is such a good satire that it's adapted, translated by Samuel Johnson about London. He rewrites it. It's as relevant to Johnson, in other words, as it was to Juvenal, and it is just as relevant to us today. So Juvenal starts by saying that his friend Umbricius, and he uses this device a lot, my friend is thinking of doing this. It's I'm sure it's him. Do you know what I mean? It's like I'm asking for a friend. You aren't juvenile. You're asking for you. His friend Umbricius is going to leave Rome because he hates Rome so much. He can't live here for another minute. He says, "I can't live in Rome. There is no room for me because I don't know how to lie." He says, "If a book is bad, I can't praise it." Now, who knows what Umbricius does for a living? But Juvenal's a writer, so. It is the case that he is trying to get money off people for his writing. Ideally, he wants a rich patron who loves his work and just hands him piles of cash to keep producing it. But that patron will probably have literary pretensions. That's why they give money to writers, I'm told. Um, So the guy is gonna produce some terrible poetry of his own, at which point Juvenal's one job, you had one job, Juvenal, his one job is to go, that is marvelous, well done you. (laughs) He can't do it. He just can't bring himself. To... If only he could have travelled through time and met Nancy Mitford, who famously used to reply when people sent her their terrible books with the words good is not the word. <laughs> <laughs> But Umbricius is leaving Rome because he can't lie and he can't be nice about terrible books. He feels like his living standards are being squeezed. Stop me if at any point this is starting to sound just too distant from you and too weirdly historic. Umbricius says he's poorer today than he was yesterday, and he feels like he'll be poorer tomorrow. In part, it's because rents are so high. I know this is so alien, isn't it? And when you do get an apartment, Juvenal tells us, it might not be as sturdy as it looks. It might look fine, but it's actually structurally unsound. And the only reason it looks fine is because the landlord, and this is a phrase which is so perfect, it just sings through time, the landlord has Texit hiatum, papered over the cracks. (laughs) Juvenal! He is a horrible person, but look, look how beautiful it is. Oh, I did warn you he was xenophobic, he hates foreigners. He especially hates Greeks. And Syrians, but mainly Greeks. He really hates Greeks, and the reason that he hates Greeks is because they can do any job. He says they're so educated, they're so educated and versatile with their education and their ability to do anything. He says, "See that Greek over there? He could convince you that he's a schoolteacher, a rhetorician, a mathematician, a painter, a masseur, an augur, a tightrope walker, a doctor, a magician. Tell him to fly," says Juvenal. He'll be up in the air. <laughs> I did warn you, the Greeks are so versatile, but do you know what else they are? Polite. (laughs) Which, as far as juvenile is concerned, is a bad thing, to clarify. He says, oh, they're always sucking up to people. See Dixer at Ice Duo Sudat. If you say, I'm hot, he'll start sweating. (laughs) He doesn't like the noise of a city. Only a rich man can have a good night's sleep in Rome, he says, because they can afford to live away from the traffic paupers, that'd be us lot, I guess, we would live right by the traffic. So we'd get all the noise of carts going by. He doesn't like traffic either. And then he goes on to say, even if you survive the traffic, you won't survive the muggers. (laughs) He says, they'll be drunk. And so you won't be able to get out of it. You'll try and kind of talk your way out of it. You won't because they're drunk and they're picking a fight. But they're never drunk enough to pick a fight with a rich guy who has bodyguards. (laughs) And uh, he says, you'll get punched in the face, whatever you say, and then he'll sue you. I don't know, for denting his jewellery or something. So that's a poor man's liberty, he says, the right to walk the street and get punched in the face, then sued. But his obsession is really with money. Rome is obsessed with money. Umbricius says, Omnia Romae cum pretio. Everything in Rome comes at a price. Move to the country, says Umbricius. That's what I'm doing. Juvenal says, move to the country. Leave the city. <laughs> live somewhere where I'd have to grow food for vegetarians. <laughs> Be king of one lizard? I can't imagine it. It's like, there's a perfect stand-up comedian setup. He spends the whole satire explaining why the city is the worst place on Earth, and then when somebody quite legitimately says, what about the opposite, he goes, <laughs> <laughs> the very idea. Armando, obviously Juvenal says he intends to satirise the famous dead, although he uh, does less of it than perhaps we're expecting him to. Hmm. You seem to be making a bit of a tilt in that direction later this year.
2: Oh, I've just done a... F- film which is coming out later this year called The Death of Stalin. Spoiler alert. um, (laughs) (laughs) In it, Stalin dies. And it's about the power struggle that goes on in the Kremlin in this sort of 10 days between him dying and the funeral to work out what happens next, who takes over. And, and this is set against the backdrop of Stalin and the security forces, the NKVD, who then became the KGB. And 20 years of just rounding people up, just names, any names, who would either be interrogated and shot or exiled, sent to the gulags and so on. So what happens when the chief terroriser dies does the terror remain but also in researching all that society you then start realizing that just as Juvenal was talking about steering clear of satirizing and criticizing those who are alive because you might get killed the soviet union then was in a state of paralysis in that people didn't know what to do because any option you did might involve stalin being unhappy with what you did and killing you so it was far better to do nothing than to do anything. And Stalin himself died as a result of that because he told his guards guarding his office never to interrupt him. So when he screamed out because he was having a stroke and fell onto the floor, the guards thought, I'm not going in there. <laughs> I'm not going in there. And so they just left him writhing on his rug for a, a whole day. Um, the, it wasn't a doctor who was summoned. It was the Presidium, the, 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 the Politburo that was summoned. They didn't know what to do or what doctor to call because Stalin was obsessed with the idea that all the good doctors in Moscow were trying to poison him. So he'd had them arrested. So they thought, well, what do we do? Do we call a bad doctor? (laughs) But but if Stalin Stalin found out we'd called a bad doctor, he'll kill us. But then if he does find out, it does mean he's survived. So it's a good doctor in a way. Um, And if it's a bad doctor and he dies, then he won't know. It's all that kind of... Logic that you realise actually happened. You know, you grew up reading things like 1984 and the Orwellian twist in that logic and thinking it's a kind of contrived satirical fiction. And then you realise it's true. That's what happened. And in fact, one thing we did discover is that under Stalin, lots of joke books circulated about Stalin, jokes about Stalin and about the security forces. And if you said any of these jokes or you were discovered with any of these joke books on your past, you would be shot. And yet people felt compelled to make jokes about it. It was their only way of reacting against this absurd system that they, they were locked inside of.
0: It's all to do with power, isn't it? That's why dictators always want to lock up comedians, because if you laugh at somebody, you're not, in that moment, afraid. of Yes,
2: me. and it's interesting that Donald Trump... Not that I'm equating him with Stalin. <laughs> um, I'm not. And the, the very fact that I put the words Donald Trump and Stalin in the same sentence doesn't in any way mean that I'm saying there's a parallel there. They're in no way alike. I'm just saying that it's interesting that Donald Trump is obsessed that people are laughing at him. Yes. He doesn't like it.
0: Satire 5 is about one of the worst dinner parties you might ever have the displeasure to go to. Sounds like such fun. So Rome has this client-patron relationship in which you, as an impoverished poet, have to suck up to somebody rich so they'll pay for your poetry. Um, and that person, the richer person, will have to suck up to somebody richer still in order to get the job, which, and so on and so on, and influence and power. And So client-patron. Eventually becomes the mafia, I suppose, over time. So it's not an ideal system, but it starts out you know, relatively benign, unless you are reading Juvenal. He says to his friend... Why are you going to dinner? Oh, why are you going to dinner with your patron when he's such an awful person? Why would you do that? You know what will happen. And the pain in this satire makes me so certain that it's happened to Juvenal and not to his friend. He says, you'll go there and your rich patron will be having lovely fluffy white bread. And you'll have bread that hasn't even been milled properly, that's full of stones and you'll break your teeth on it. And he'll have a delicious vintage wine and you'll have vinegar. Vinegar and he'll have this beautiful jeweled goblet to drink out of, and you'll have a cup that leaks. He says, you won't get anywhere near the jeweled goblet, and if you do get near it, his slaves, the rich man's slaves, will stand over you to make sure you don't go at it with a fingernail and pick off a jewel. <laughs> it's, de- it's definitely happened to him. I think we all have to agree that this is true. He says, why would you possibly submit yourself to Inoriam Canai, the insult of dinner? Oh, look at that. Who else would do that? Just juvenile. He might be evil, but oh, it is a beauty. Satire 6 is the one on women. It is such a misogynistic screed that I cannot recommend that you read it. If you do read it, I would have to suggest that at the end of it, you read the Scum Manifesto to balance things out. (laughs) Maybe watch Frozen or something so you feel happy about Sisters again. (laughs) Whatever it takes. But go and see Wonder Woman. It'll all be fine. But (laughs) it is a brilliant piece of writing, but it is horrible. It is every trope of misogyny you could ever hope for. He begins by saying to his friend... I don't know why you would be thinking about getting married when there's so much rope available by the yard. I know! He says, you know, there's a bridge you could jump off, there are those yawning windows on a top floor. What are you thinking? Why would you ever get married? He says, if you do get married, you know she'll be stupid and boring, and that'll be awful, or she'll be clever and she'll correct your Greek pronunciation. (laughs) That had definitely happened to him, I think. (laughs) Again, we can all agree. So he's going to keep doing this. He's going to keep setting up opposites. So just when you think you know where he stands, he definitely hates educated women. Oh, no, he hates uneducated women. He hates sophisticated urban women. Oh, women from the countryside are common and smell of acorns. I mean, the whole time. I wish I were joking. She'll be spendthrift. She'll have all your money, she'll spend all your money. Or she'll be the rich one and she'll be stingy and you won't be able to pay for anything. He says she'll fall for a gladiator. Oh, the humiliation. And he does a particularly revolting portrait of a retired gladiator who's got a sort of weeping eye from an injury which has never healed up and a sort of disgusting wen on his nose but Epia the senator's wife a sort of archetypal senator's wife falls for him because said erat gladiator he was a gladiator it's the only thing that matters even though he's disgusting your wife will have an affair with a eunuch he says <laughs> no fool she then she won't get pregnant if your mother-in-law is alive it is game over he says you might find a good wife. I mean, you might do. Seems very unlikely to him, but you might do. He says such a woman would be a rara arwis, a rare bird. Another phrase we still use today. He says the more likely scenario is that you'll end up with a wife who sleeps with all your friends and humiliates you. And you'd like to think you could get around that by hiring a bodyguard. But you know what she's going to do then? <laughs> yeah, she's totally going to have sex with the bodyguard, is what's going to happen. And... In this moment, he uses one of the most quoted lines in all of Latin literature, quis custodiet, ipsos custodes, who guards, the guards themselves. And it is always quoted today by somebody really po-faced talking about civil liberties. (laughs) LAUGHTER Even though I agree with them, I always think it's worth bearing in mind that this quote doesn't come from a political theorist. It's not from Aristotle. It isn't in Plato. It's from Juvenal, talking about the impossibility of stopping your slutty wife from sleeping with the man you hired to stop her from sleeping with all your friends. (laughs) Armando... You have done that rarest of things, which is to create a three-dimensional woman in a satire.
2: Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, we wrote feet v... It really arose just from practical reasons in that we wrote it as a female vice president because as we were writing it, I didn't want people to think, oh, who's this meant to be? Is this meant to be Joe Biden or Al Gore or Dick Cheney? So it just seemed... And then, of course, you think, OK, this central figure has to be an amazing comic performer, which is why we got asked Julia Louis-Dreyfus to do it. Once you do that, you don't actually think about agenda gender being an issue. It's not about that, it's about politics, and it's about I'm more interested in, in what these people do rather than who they are and what they are.
0: Women, the same thing as people.
2: <laughs> yeah, they are just They are just like people, yeah. women. They're just, just like them. You can almost mistake one for the other. It's you not know? it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been caught out a few times, actually, yeah. yeah. Wise to it now, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. now I know, yeah. What is the test? I don't know. There must be some test,
0: like the Turing test for gender. Yeah,
2: the freedom. I really thought I was talking to a person there, (laughs) but it was a woman. Yeah. (laughs) See what's happened now? You see, we've started trying to make a joke about it. We've just, you know, we've
0: just regressed. Can juvenile be redeemed? I feel like I've given you enough illustrations of his horribleness, and so I should tell you why I picked him. Quite aside from his comic brilliance, by the time we get to satire ten. Juvenal has changed. These satires were edited over quite a long period of time. It's quite hard to know which order they were written in and exactly when. People have tried dating them by the hairstyles and things like that, but he's being vile about it on stage. But then is he being vile about it because it's out of date, or is he being vile about it because it's up to the minute? When we get to satire 10, Juvenal's status anxiety has ebbed. He is richer. He is more successful. And because of that, his vitriol has been dialed down. It's the be careful what you wish for satire so he says well you should be careful what you wish for because people pray for things and then it doesn't work out he says don't wish for power for example if you wish for power you might end up like serjanus oh patrick stewart in there uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I second with a with hair I'm just not at all looking like john luke picard that's made it harder for us all but anyway <laughs> patrick stewart is second in command to tiberius george baker um and he's second in command for ages and then tiberius turns on him and he is executed, his body is dragged by a hook into the river Tiber, and his statues are melted down, Juvenal says, yesterday's statues are today's pots and pans. So that's what happens if you wish for power, high risk. Don't wish for beauty, because then Claudius, Derek Jacobi, Claudius's third wife Messalina will fall for you, and if you agree to it, the emperor will have you killed. If you refuse her, she'll have you killed. So don't wish for beauty, don't wish for power. What should you wish for? Mm, well and see how it feels like a dialogue again it feels like there's been an audience to me as he goes through this he says what should you wish for nothing let the gods decide oh you've got to wish for something oh let me just persuade you a bit more juvenile he says you've got to wish for something okay well then the thing you should wish for and again one of the most quoted lines in all of latin literature mens sana incorpore sano he says a healthy mind in a healthy body where's all that vitriol gone you should wish for a brave mind with no fear of death that puts a long life last among nature's gifts, that can bear any hardship, that doesn't know anger, and that lusts after nothing. I think we can all agree that if somebody who was basically 98% vitriol can come round to that level of acceptance, we might have something to learn from him. Ladies and gentlemen, Natalie Haynes starts up the classics, was written and performed by me, Natalie Haynes. My guests were Armando Yunucci and Llewellyn Morgan, and our producer was the marvellous Mary Ward Lowry.